Good morning. Today we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Are they welcome here? 4.0. For those of you that are new to grace, let me give you a bit of a a, uh, review of 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. In 1 and 2.0, we focused on accepting all people, regardless of where they came from, where they live, how much money they make, what they look like. Basically, that all Christians should engage all people relationally and with the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. That was the idea on those first two. Last week, we looked at 3.0, and we saw that Jesus accepts repentant sinners, and so must his church. And we looked at Acts chapter 9, where Paul was a brand new believer. He tried to to fellowship with the church in Jerusalem, and he was rejected. And it was not unlike how a lot of people feel when they go to churches. Maybe they feel kind of like a leper. Maybe they feel like people are suspicious of them. Maybe they feel like people just plain don't like them. Today... We're going to look at 4.0 and the other side of the acceptance coin. Because today we're going to see that while Christ Jesus accepts repentant sinners, and so must his church, that there is a question that I think is probably the toughest question that churches are faced with the most often, and, and a question that actually isn't really dealt with. And the question is this. Are unrepentant sinners welcome in Christ's church? Are people who are saying they're believers and who are in active rebellion against God welcome in the church? That's what we're going to look at today. So I want you to bow your heads and pray with me as we attempt to to handle accurately God's word and what it says on the matter. Let's pray. Lord God, we we thank you for this time today, and I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would open your words to our heart. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal your glory as well as our true condition. Lord, that your, your Spirit would have its way with us today, that, that we would be right with you, that, that we, those in pain would be comforted, those maybe that are, that are going astray would be challenged, but that all of us would be changed, that, that we wouldn't leave here today just in the same way we were before. And Lord, I pray that nothing would hinder us from receiving your word today. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're looking at the first 13 verses. And, and actually, you know, Brian read it very well, and what, what, what you would see as you, as you listen to it is that God's Word actually gives us an answer to this question. Are unrepentant sinners welcome in the church? The answer is in here. There are specific scriptural guidelines for what to do, both with unrepentant believers and unbelievers. So, this is good news for us. So, so go there to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 1. And uh, let me say something about this letter to the Corinthians, this first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. 
it's interesting. Um, Paul planted the church in Corinth. And even in verse 6 of chapter 3 here in 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And the idea is that, that God used him to plant the church. He's writing to the church. God used him to plant the church. Then Apollos came after, and he, he watered the seeds that were planted. I mean, Paul says, you are God's field. So he's using this agricultural kind of idea with them and saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Now, if you know anything about Corinth, what you would know is that, that it, had, it had problems in that church. There were things going on in that church that actually kind of parallel some of the things that still go on in the church today. And uh, if you look in, in Acts 18 sometime, what you'll see is that that Paul had preached the gospel in Corinth, that a man named Crispus had come to the Lord, and then a lot more Corinthians came to faith in Christ. But the church in Corinth had a bunch of problems. And I think part of the reason was where it was located. I mean, where you, where you live affects you. And, and Corinth was a city that had a really bad reputation. It was located on a major trade route, so a lot of people were going in and out of this city. And it was known as basically a cesspool of sin and debauchery and depravity. In fact, in those days, if you wanted to really corrupt someone, you would Corinthianize them. That was the way they said it. If you, if you were going to really lead someone in the wrong way, you would Corinthianize them. What we see in in the church in Corinth is that the world had permeated the church. Not so unlike the times in which we live now. The first thing we see in this passage today, and by the way, this is not the first problem that Paul writes to them about. He had told them, he says, you know, you are, you are making you know, problems in the church because you say, I follow Paul. Because, you know, maybe he started this church and other people say, no, we follow Apollos because he's a better preacher or whatever. And they've got this competition going amongst the leaders of, of this church. And he's like, you need to have your eyes on Jesus, not on the people who are leading it. But the problem he's pointed out now is that there was unchecked sin in the church. And the church had done nothing about it. They had let it go. There was unrepentant, unconfessed, habitual sin that had been allowed in the church. Look at verse 1. He says it's actually reported. The idea that they had heard stories, they had got the news that this is what was going on in Corinth. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Sexual immorality, that's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. He says there is, there is immorality among you of a kind that isn't tolerated amongst the pagans remember where they were they're in corinth of all places like the worst place for stuff like this and he says you know what what you're doing is worse than what pagans would do a man had his father's wife literally he was married to his stepmom that that word has is a strong word it means that they had been gotten married so Obviously, this is a, a, a crazy, wrong situation. But the church 
had turned a blind eye to this. The church hadn't done anything about it. They were allowing things that the culture in which they lived in would reject. It was not going to give a good name for the church of Christ. Verse 2, he says, you are arrogant. Literally, you're puffed up. He says, shouldn't you be mourning? Shouldn't you be grieving over this situation? And by the way, as he is writing it, the situation is going on. It is an ongoing situation. He goes, you should be mourning. Now, their arrogance took the form of this oblivious, you know, obliviousness to the sin and they had turned a blind eye to it but also this church took pride in how accepting they were of people this church took pride in how tolerant they were sound familiar now i think there's some common well-meaning but wrong responses to habitual sinners in the church and by the way let me just say when i say that what i mean is people who are saying they're believers but insist on living a life that doesn't please God. When he said, it is actually reported that there is this sexual immorality among you, it's about their fellowship. He's writing to a church, and he's saying, it's, it's in the midst of you, it's in your gatherings, and you need to do something about it, but you didn't. Well, here's some of the things we do when, we, when we're faced with this really tough question. This is a very tough question. It's tough because it gets personal. Well, the first thing is we, we just we, we, we go with the, let's bury our heads in the sand. It's not really happening. We're going to just stay ignorant about it. Or we could hide it. We could say, you know, it's not a problem. We're free in Christ. Another conscience is going to bite the dust. It's going to be seared. You shouldn't pretend that everything is all right when it isn't. Some people respond in harshness. The hammer comes down. Let's get them out of the church now. We must keep pure. There's the door. Now, it's a good thing we're not doing that today because I would be leaving first, right? Say, if there's anyone here sin this week, there's the door. Well, let's just all go together. Let's go to lunch, okay? Oh, wait, I'm not supposed to even eat a meal. Okay. Oh, no. Um, so the hammer comes down and, and you're out of here. And then there's the always popular compromise. You know, scriptural gymnastics. Making the Bible say what it doesn't say. Well, you know, it's cultural. It doesn't really apply to us today. We're under grace. Do you know how many things get covered with grace that shouldn't get covered with with that kind of false grace? Now, let me just say, there are churches... And I'm not trying to pick on other churches, but there are churches, I guess, yes, I am. There are churches that are saying that clearly unbiblical things are right. And it's, it's, it's okay to kill babies. There's churches that are actually encouraging abortion. Uh, there are churches that are encouraging homosexuality. And they're basically saying, these things are okay. It's all right. I know the Bible says that, but just cross that part out. So there is going on and the compromise in Christ's church, and it's not just an American church problem. This happens across the world. Okay? It's across the world. It's not just the... The American church has a lot of problems, but it's not just the American church. Now, at the other end of the spectrum of responses, 
to, from a lot of Christians to, to unrepentant sin is outrage and outright horror. It's like, how could anyone do that? Whoa, I would never do that. I don't even want to be around when someone's saying they would never do that. Many Christians get this, this self-righteous attitude that, wow, look how bad those people are. And as if they could never do the same thing. The Bible says that the one who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. That we should look to ourselves. If we ever think of correcting anyone else, we should look first to ourselves that we too would not be tempted. I tell people this all the time. If you can't wait to, say, to set someone straight, you probably shouldn't. But if you dread bringing up the thing that you need to say, you probably should. But some Christians respond in horror when they see sin. I think the fact that we all struggle with sin should make us more loving and more empathetic. But also more honest. More convinced of the wrongness and sinfulness of certain things. It's just a proven fact that 100% of the time is true. That wherever sinful people gather, wherever depraved humans live, sin is going to rear its ugly head. And sometimes that ugly head is covered with a very deceptive, nice-looking mask. Okay, so there was a problem in the church, and the church had done nothing about it. Now, the second thing we see in this passage is that obviously something needed to be done. An action that God wanted to take place that hadn't taken place, which was neither easy nor painless, was supposed to happen. Okay, so look with me at verse 2 again. It says, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? So they should have been grieving, they should have mourned. And then Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Hmm. So we should probably look and see what removed means, right? Do a little word study. Removed means, you should write this one down. Removed means to remove. Do <laughs> yeah? you know what I'm saying? Should I talk about it a little bit more? Removed means remove. He's going to get taken out of the fellowship of the church. He's already broken the fellowship of the church. So what he's already broken organically is now going to be, you know, organizationally recognized. Remove him from among you. And then Paul gives these very specific instructions. They're very hard for us to read. Especially one of these verses. It says, verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. He's saying, I'm with you with this. I can't be with you right now, but I am with you on this. He says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. There's verse 3. Judgment. And you say, well, we're not supposed to judge. It's true. That's what Romans 14 says. Don't judge your brother. Don't judge brother sinfully. But the Bible also says, judge with righteous judgment. This is here to tell you, you should judge whether someone is doing the wrong thing or not. So Christians are supposed to judge, but righteously, not sinfully. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Just stop for a moment. Think about this, this, this phrase. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right there is one more proof that Christians are supposed to gather together and worship the Lord. 
in the name of Jesus, according to who he is and what he has done. He says, when you're assembled, so they were assembling on a regular basis, just like we do. And when you're assembled, and he said, my spirit is present, so I'm with you, though I can't be with you. And with the power of the Lord Jesus, there's this assurance that when you do what God wants you to do, God is with you. God is pleased. He says, verse 5, and this is the tough one. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Those are tough words. What does it mean? Was there a drop-off spot? You deliver him over to Satan. Like the little FedEx box. What? 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 What does this mean? Deliver him over to Satan. I'm going to take a stab at this. Evidently, my thought is this. Evidently, deliver over would mean to separate him. Remember, he already said, remove him. You're going to see a lot of words like this. Remove, deliver, cleanse, verse 7. And at the end of, at the end of this passage, the idea of, of uh, purging. Very strong words for getting something out of something. So deliver seems to have a, the idea of removing him, separating him from the fellowship of the church that he's already broken, to put him out. And the idea is that this is a professing believer, and Paul says, do this so that his spirit may be saved. The idea that he would come to repentance, the idea that he would come back to the Lord, the idea that he would confess his sins and, and do what is right. There's, that's the idea. I think this question of what to do when someone who says they're a Christian insists on living a life that does not please God is really one of the toughest questions a church faces, Christians face. And it puts us in the realm of what is known as church discipline. And if those of you were around when I preached on church discipline, what's my name for it? Anyone remember? Church good stuff. Exactly. See, someone was listening that day. Church, good stuff. It's not bad stuff, it's good stuff. Why is it good stuff? Well, it's like good medicine for you that gets you better. Because it leads to good things when you do what God says you should do. So church, good stuff. It leads us to this idea of of church discipline. Now, I don't know why they put up with unrepentant sin. We We don't know why. Maybe they were being respecters of persons. Maybe they thought, well, you know, this person is very influential in the, in the community, and he's a very wealthy man in the church, and uh, we don't want to ruffle any, any feathers here. Maybe they were f- afraid of offending this person. I don't know. But they put up with unrepentant sin, and it was worse than, than pagans would do, and, and, it, and it happened in that church. And this, just, this kind of stuff, unrepentant sin, doesn't just happen, didn't just happen in Corinth. Sin has been a problem in every church that's ever existed where sinful people gather. And Christians should care about this situation. Christians should care about this, I, this topic. You might say, well, I don't really see any direct application to my life right now so i'm not going to worry about it you must give me something that i can take right today and and you know apply to my life and i would just say you need to think about this and whether you think you're affected by it or not you are 
You are. We are. All Christians should care about this. Those who belong to the family of God should care about it. We're called citizens of heaven, right? And just like a citizen of America would want to protect America from every enemy, right, uh, foreign and domestic, we, members of the body of Christ, must be aware there are enemies of the church, and sometimes those enemies actually come in from inside the church. This is a professing believer. So there was a drastic solution to the problem. Now look, I I know how easy it is to want to bend the rules for people you like. Just give them the benefit of the doubt. Let them slide. Maybe they'll work it out and kind of self-correct on this one. But God lays down a standard in His Word that is for His glory and, uh, and our good. And the Bible is our final authority, our, our final rule in faith and practice. Let's just say you get really sick and you go to the doctor. And the doctor says to you, you know, the only way I can save your life is by cutting off your leg, by amputating your leg. That's the only way that you can survive. It's your only chance of survival. Well, you're going to weigh your options and say, you know what? Losing the leg is better than losing the life at this point. I'm going to go under the knife. So the church was going to have to do this. By the way, Paul didn't say, look, if you feel like it, you need to do this. He is saying, you have got to do this. Do you think they were stressed out before that next assembly? Oh my goodness. And by the way, just so there was no confusion paul clarified who exactly he was referring to he had written a previous letter to them and it seems they may have misunderstood what he was talking about and god is very clear about how to relate to unbelievers and professing believers who live in sin so verse 9 look at verse 9 he says i wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people verse 10 not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I mean, what do a lot of Christians do? I don't want to hang around anyone from the world because they might infect me. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to be around anyone who's doing stuff like that. And my, my, my question is, what do you expect? What do you expect from unbelievers? Do you expect unbelievers to act like believers? So you would be saying then that the gospel has no power to change a life. You could just kind of will it to happen and just live a better life. Paul says, look, I am writing to you, verse 11, not to associate, and that's a very close personal term of very trusted interaction. Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, And it's not just a male thing here. This is male and female, brothers and sisters. If someone is proclaiming, professing to be a Christian and they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a one. He goes on, verse 12, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those... Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? There again, Christians are to judge with righteous judgment, not sinful judgment. And then he says, verse 13, God judges those outside. 
It's not our job to judge the world. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 8, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's job, not our job. So Paul says, verse 13, at the end, purge the evil person from among you. That's the church's job. Now some of you are saying, I don't like this. Tough. It is, isn't it? Isn't it tough? Does anyone like this? This is not easy stuff. This is not painless stuff. But this is what God was telling them to do. Take decisive action to do what you should have done. And now you must, you must amputate. They would remove the sinner from their midst. Let's, let's bring this home to where we live. How are we to respond to people living in unrepentant sin. Well, it really depends on whether a person professes to be a believer or not. And I can just see some people saying, ooh, I can get off the hook by saying I'm not a believer. Well, then you got all sorts of other problems going on, okay? So you can try that if you want, but I wouldn't suggest it. Okay, so here's the thing. With unbelievers, with unbelievers, what must we do? Well, we must lovingly and clearly call them to faith and repentance and love them we should love an unsafe person and don't focus on their behavior what i'm supposed to ignore sin you're supposed to be more concerned about their eternal soul than about the the temporary outworkings of sin in their life right now called to preach the gospel not to to Make sure everyone is living a moral life right now. Let God correct that. Don't expect unbelievers to act like believers should act. And believers, by the way, should act a certain way. How? Um, Whatever God says. That's how believers should act. I've, I've run into plenty of people that I know that have said, you know, when I, came, when I became a believer, I didn't realize that you know, X, Y, Z was, was sinful or was wrong for me, but I read it in the Bible, I'm like, I'm not doing that anymore. That's what a believer does. They read something in the Bible, they go, oh, it says don't gossip. I'm not going to do that anymore. Oh, it says don't do that. I'm not going to do that anymore. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to go away from that. So with professing believers, and this is what we're talking about today, this is what Paul's talking about here, you call them to faith and, and obedience to Jesus, and a lifestyle of repentance. I think every believer's motto should be repentant and still repenting. Repentant and still repenting for Jesus and the gospel. The person who says they're a believer, um, we should absolutely expect them to act like believers should act should expect ourselves fruit of the spirit will be evident the fruit of god's spirit at work in a person's life will come out you don't have to force these things out you don't have to work on it god does that you need to obey you need to do what god says and then there are people in the church that struggle with sin but they don't want to act out on the sin that they're struggling with 
They shouldn't be condemned. They should be commended. They should be strengthened and comforted to do what is right. But while there is a person who is blatantly living a sinful lifestyle, when they're not fighting it, but they're celebrating it, it must be called out. It must be corrected. It must, it must be called to repentance. That is the most loving and merciful response, by the way. And just so we're clear, if there is a person who is professing to be a true believer, but chooses to persist in blatantly unrepentant sin, and choose to call that sin an acceptable lifestyle, then we find ourselves in the context of church good stuff. I want you to remember something too here. Because a lot of people say, wow, I've got a lot of work to do. I've got to go out and, you know, talk to some people. This was written to a church. This was written to a church. And that church had leadership. And there were, there were things, that there was kind of like a... Uh, an order that things were to be going in and, and the elders uh, and the leadership of the church were to take the lead in these matters. And individual believers have a part in it. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go and speak to him in private. Don't go air it out to the whole church. Don't go you know, put it out on, on your social media outlets and tell everyone about what this person did. And I know people who do that. Don't do that. Go and, and, and just talk to them in private. And if they listen, everything's good. Case closed. It doesn't need to go any further. But if they don't listen, if they refuse, you take one or two others with you. You confirm the situation. And if they don't listen to, that, to you, again, with a little group, then take it to the church. And then if, if, they, if they don't listen to the church, the church is supposed to give them a message, please don't do this anymore. This is bad for you. It's bad for us. It's not going to lead you in the right way. And if they don't listen to that, it says let him be to you as an outsider, as an unbeliever, basically. Well, the thing is, the Corinthian church hadn't done those, those prescribed steps of discipline, of good stuff that Christians should just do. And so... They had to have this big amputation. Now this passage raises all sorts of questions for us. And by the way, I can't answer every question today. Uh, and, and there's going to be, there'll be coming weeks that we'll revisit some of these ideas. But let me just mention one in verse 11. Paul said, I'm writing to you not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of all these sins and don't even eat with such a one. So does this mean that you can't even have dinner with an unrepentant professed believer? It's a good question. A lot of Christians have asked me this question. So am I supposed to appeal to them to change their ways, but I, I can't do that at Sonic or In-N-Out? So there can't be any food involved. We can have what? Tea? Coffee? How about boba? You kind of chew that though, so I don't think that would work, would it? You can't do this over a Frosty? What? What's, what's, what's up? Maybe that, that you don't chew that. I know plenty of Christians who think that, sincerely think that they can't have any food contact with unrepentant, professed believers because they don't want to break what the Bible says. And all I can say is they're wrong. I love their pure motive, but they're misguided. So what we need is a clear understanding of what it means to eat a meal. Okay? Let's, let's talk about that in the first century. What did it mean to eat a meal with someone? Eating a meal expressed, implied a close personal friendship and fellowship and trust and taking them into your confidence as a close friend. 
And there was also the connotation amongst the early church of breaking the bread, also known as the Lord's Supper, remembering the shed blood and broken body of Jesus in our place. Well, you can't do that with a clear conscience as someone who is actively opposing that message. What I do believe is you can eat food with a person who is living in unrepentant sin and calls themselves a believer. But there's no way you can have true fellowship with him because that would be a sham, that would be a lie, and it would be disingenuous. What you do is you treat them as if they're an unbeliever. You eat meals with unbelievers. You call them to faith in Christ. You call them to repentance and obedience to the word of God. And you can do that over sushi or a plate of enchiladas if you want. You're free to eat a meal with someone who is living in unrepentant sin just like you would eat a meal with an unbeliever. But in their case, this is not a comfortable meal. This is a crisis meal. They're not going to enjoy the meal. You're meeting to appeal to them to change their ways and return to the Lord and into fellowship. You're going to call them to faith in Christ and repentance? They're probably not going to feel like eating. But you're not free to pretend as if they're in full fellowship with Christ's church and Jesus himself. You must give them the message that they are in a dire situation. You're not free to welcome them to the communion of the church and welcome them into your confidence as a believer who can be trusted. I think the reason why so many situations today don't unfold like this and like God intends is because so many churches and believers don't foster true fellowship. In coming weeks, I'll I'll preach on what true fellowship is. Not today, but let me just mention this. The word fellowship in the Bible uh, in Greek is koinonia. comes from the word common bond, a common direction. And, and the synonyms would be sharing and participation and being partners. It's the idea of believers, you know, doing life together and being generous with who they are and what they have and being willing to give of themselves and, and be real and open and purposeful in their, in their interactions. It's a costly gift from God to those in active trust and obedience to Jesus. True fellowship is a spirit-led work of God through a group working together for Jesus and the gospel. But true believers don't experience this very often because they don't even know what it is. They have a a very light and airy view of what fellowship is, and it's not just a Christian version of a party. It is something uh, that is real and deep and meaningful. The other thing is, um, the other thing is, we've got to always look to ourselves. We can't look at other people and point the fingers at them. Okay, and, and let me just mention this: sexual immorality is not the only sin mentioned here. Have you noticed that? It talks about um, other things. <laughs> it, it talks about greed and and slander and idolatry and drunkenness and swindling, getting as much cheating people and getting as much for yourself as you can and I think there's a lot of churches that sin doesn't get corrected in because it's not a biggie in their mind a lot of sins in in the church of Jesus Christ kind of just get swept under the rug as 
It's kind of an allowable, it's in the allowable zone. It's just a little gossip. It's just a little slander. It's just a little greed. I know I'm worshiping a false idol, but I'm trying to worship Jesus. And so we really get slippery with this, and we only go after the biggies. And just, I just want you to see here that, that there, are, there are other things named. There are other sins named that are, that are just as in need of correction. And um, I know we gotta, I got to bring the plane down for a landing, I believe, right about now. And um, let me just say this. Unbelievers are always welcome in Christ's church. They will be called to faith and repentance. We will, make a, we, will, we will work very hard at making people feel comfortable relationally, but we will not work hard at making people comfortable spiritually and make them think, you know, do the big bait and switch. Ah, we're just going to kind of talk about some things. No, they're going to hear the, about Jesus. They're going to be hearing about the fact that they're lost without him and on their way to hell. We should be preaching the gospel to everyone and ourselves. And repentant believers are always welcome. Always. By the way, life with the body of Christ in fellowship with the body of Christ provides all the checks and balances needed that are absent in the life of one who persists in unrepentant sin but still claims to be a believer. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Let me just say this too. And I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Uh, If you happen to be living an unrepentant lifestyle and you say you're a Christian, I pray that you will be sobered by the words that you have heard today. And I pray that they they cause you to consider, reconsider your direction in life. And I pray that concerned members of the body of Christ will go to you and lovingly, very lovingly and respectfully and honestly tell you the truth. And I pray that you will listen. And that you turn to Jesus in faith and repentance and obedience. Because you are going to be one of the most miserable people on the planet until you do. God will not be mocked. The man reaps what he sows. And by the way, I think that anyone who is in their right mind would say, if I ever go off the deep end, you go after me with all guns blazing. And even if I fight you off and say, get away from me and don't tell me what to do, you keep coming. I think a lot of Christians are scared off by the abrasiveness of people that are saying they're believers and, and not wanting to repent. And I would just say, do what you know they would tell you they would want when they're in their clear thinking mode. Last thing. Last thing. You've got to look at what verse 7 says. It says that you do all of this because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And that we are to celebrate the festival. Like, wow, now you're supposed to have a party? What does celebrating the festival mean? It means celebrating what Jesus has done. It means that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and he despised the shame. He died for lost sinners and he has sat down at the right hand of God. He's exalted. And we are to to live lives that celebrate that truth. Lord God, thank you that you always base things on the gospel truth that Jesus died for sin. And the professing believers should not live in habitual sin, but seek to please you in everything we do, living in your strength. Lord, let the gospel be the reason and the basis for our living and and for our response when we need to do the toughest things. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.